0: Well, this morning we'll be continuing our study in the book of Genesis concerning Jacob and Esau. But our sermon text is going to come from Romans chapter 9. The reasons will become apparent as we go along. We're going to be focusing on verses 12 and 13 in particular. But so that we have our context in mind, let's start reading at Romans 9 verse 6. These are the words of God. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written... Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now by the Spirit, open these deep words to us. Help us to understand the glory and the beauty and the power of all that you were doing for your saints so many years ago, Lord, to preach the gospel to them. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last time we were in Genesis, we began taking a deep look at, at Jacob and Esau, and we saw that the very common stereotype that Esau was a man's man and a jolly good fellow, but Jacob was a mild mama's boy hanging out with the women and a bit of a snake, we saw that that stereotype simply does not hold up in light of Scripture. We saw that the Hebrew word calling Jacob mild in most of the English translations literally means complete. It's a word that was used of Noah in Genesis 6, 9. It was used of Job in Job 1, 1. It is what God called Abraham to be in Genesis 17, verse 1. It's what he would later call the whole nation of Israel to be. So it is a very spiritual, strong, and complementary word. And we saw that also from reading ahead and looking, taking a survey of the stories of these two boys, we saw that Jacob actually was very physically strong. He was industrious, he was responsible, he was trustworthy, he was loyal. He was a very capable man who furthermore wanted the responsibilities of covenant headship. Esau, on the other hand, cared nothing about God or the things of God or the responsibilities of covenant headship, but lived only for the moment. And this is why when we look at Hebrews, that the hall of fame of faith there in Hebrews 11 and 12, we see uh, Jacob mentioned as a positive example for us today, but Esau is one of only two negative examples, him and Cain, or the negative examples that we're specifically told to not be like. And of course, it's pointing particularly to the incident where he appraised his birthright to be of so little value because it wasn't doing anything for him in the moment that he willingly traded it, eyes open, for a single meal of lentil soup. And so we saw coming true... In the lives of boys as they were becoming lads and young men, God's prophetic choice and decree, the older shall serve the younger. At the same time, as we looked forward in their lives, and we saw after they had been separated for 20 years, there seemed to be hope for Esau because when the boys reunited... Esau seemed like a completely different man. Even Jacob was shocked at the difference. Jacob was convinced that Esau was coming out to kill him. And the old Esau would have done exactly that. But in fact, when they met, Esau was joyful to see Jacob. He embraced him. He hugged him. He was glad to see him. He welcomed him in peace and graciousness. So with that backdrop that we gathered last time, the question we want to face today is, how does Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated fit into this? Is that a statement of God's eternal decree regarding individual salvation? Is it a statement of salvation to Jacob and damnation to Esau? Or is it something else? And if so... What? So there's a lot going on here, so let's take it layer by layer from the ground up. First of all, let's state very clearly that the Bible teaches God's sovereignty in salvation right down to the individual. So many passages we could look at on this. We could just turn back a few verses to Romans chapter 8 verses 28 through 30 which be a good example. But let's look for sake of time at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. So there's no question that God, that the Bible teaches God's sovereignty with regard to salvation. Now the, the mistake that people very commonly make is, when they get a good dose of God's salvation, uh, I mean, God's sovereignty and salvation like that, is we have a tendency to picture God like a hockey goalie blocking all these people who are trying to come to Jesus. But that's not the situation. The situation is there's no one to block because no one is coming apart from God sovereignly intervening in our lives. Making us alive by the Spirit, working faith within us, no one would ever turn to Christ in faith and repentance. Ephesians chapter two, verse four. God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, you see, we're not in a neutral state apart from Christ. We're not in a neutral state. We are dead. We are slaves we're incapable of helping ourselves because we're in a helpless condition. Even when we were dead in trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what it means to be saved by grace. It means we were helpless to help ourselves and God saved. And then he goes on in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, And that not of yourself. The faith is not self-generated. It is the gift of God. And we could add many similar passages. So there's no question that the Bible teaches God's sovereignty with regard to salvation right down to the personal level. But the question still remains, is that what Paul is talking about in Romans 9 and verse 13? Well, he is certainly talking about God's sovereignty. But I would submit to you that he's talking about a different aspect of God's sovereignty other than sovereignty with regard to individual salvation. I want to submit to you that he's talking in Romans 9 about the aspect of God's sovereignty that pertained to the burning issue of Paul's day the issue that we see played out across the pages of the New Testament creating all of the conflict. And it was the question not of God's sovereignty because you see, the Jewish leadership would have agreed with God's sovereignty. They affirmed that. They had no problem with God's sovereignty. What created the issue of the day was this question. What defines the people of God. What defines God's people? To the Jewish leadership, it was national Israel marked out by circumcision and ritual separation from Gentiles. Now this is why you see in Acts 15 verse 1 this statement. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren... Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This is why you see recorded in Galatians chapter 2, verse 12, that when these men came down from Judea, previously Peter and the other Jewish disciples there in Antioch would uh, eat with all the Gentile Christians. Everybody ate together together but when these uh, uh, Jewish advocates of national Israel and circumcisions be the definitive marks of the people of God, Peter and the others began to withdraw from the Gentile Christians. They would no longer eat with them. This is why you see Jesus condemning the scribes and Pharisees in Mark chapter 7, for example, for adding things to the word of God. They asked him, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? Now they were not talking about cleanliness. What they were talking about was ritual washing. They would say, even if you know your hands are clean, they're talking about a ritual washing just in case you might have come in contact with the Gentiles and thus be defiled. You were supposed to do this ritual washing according to the custom of the elders, because it was not required in the law of God. That's the point Jesus is making. They were supposed to cleanse himself ritually of this defilement that they could have incidentally picked up from um, Gentiles. And Jesus tells them, laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. You see, in the Old Testament law, God never required that Jews not eat with Gentiles. With the exception of the Passover meal, which was the forerunner to the Lord's Supper, so the Passover meal was in a category by itself, right? Just like today that you have, you have to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be admitted to the Lord's Supper, but you are most welcome to come to the church potluck, right? So all the other feasts in the Old Testament, not only did God allow Gentiles, strangers, foreigners who were living in Israel to come, he commanded that they be brought. He said, the stranger and the alien who is among you, you bring them to the feasts. So this is something they had changed because to them, this is what marked out God's true people. Well, the apostles rejected that. They said, no, it is Jesus himself that defines God's people. All who have faith in Jesus circumcised or not are included in God's people. And all who disbelieve, circumcised or not, are excluded from God's people. Well, that was anathema to the Jewish leadership. They answered the apostles by saying, Jesus cannot be Israel's Messiah because, how do we know? Because he's not embracing Israel, Israel as we have defined it. Rather, he is redefining and remaking Israel around himself in violation of all of God's promises. The apostles responded that the Jewish leaders needed to go back and reread their own history, starting with Genesis and see that God had redefined and remade his people around each one of the Old Testament Christ types. Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David, and so forth. He had redefined and remade his Uh, people around every single one of them because all of those Christ types were pointing forward to Messiah Jesus around whom God finally and forever redefined and remade his people in fulfillment of all God's promises. In Romans 9, I would submit to you, Paul is showing us how God sovereignly chose Isaac as the Christ type over firstborn Ishmael and Jacob as the Christ type over firstborn Esau. So Romans 9 is it's talking about the sovereignty of God It's talking about the sovereign choice of God, or you could say the sovereign election of God, but it's not talking about sovereign election unto individual salvation, but sovereign election unto this special office of being the Christ type, the covenant head, the heir, and the one who is pointing to Christ okay so it was election unto office just like when god chose or elected the sons of aaron to be the priests that was the sovereign election of god too but it wasn't talking about individual salvation it's talking about election unto a particular office and so both with with isaac and with jacob god redefined and remade his people around the Christ type. So in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, when God puts Ishmael and Esau outside the covenant line, that's not the same thing as damning them. Putting them outside the the covenant line is not the same thing as damning them. They were in the same situation as the unbelieving Jews of the first century. In this respect, if they repented of their unbelief, they would be saved through Christ by faith. Look at Romans 11, verses 19 through 23. Paul says, he's dealing with the same issue. He says, "'You Gentile believers will say then, "'Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. "'Well said.'" Because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in for God is able to graft them in again. Paul is analogizing God's people all through history, Old Testament and New, to a single olive tree. How many people does God have? How many olive trees does he have? One. One people throughout history. And he's, he's analogizing Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, being brought into the church. He's analogizing them to being wild branches that are on wild olive trees, uh, being Cut off and being grafted into God's olive tree. And he's analogizing unbelieving Jews as being part of the cultivated olive tree being cut out due to their unbelief and removed. And he tells, so he tells the Gentile branches, don't forget you stand by faith as well. And then he says, also don't forget that if the Jewish branches repeat, repent of their unbelief, God will graft them back in. That's the position that Ishmael and Esau were in in the Old Testament. And that's why it is encouraging when we see Ishmael standing next to Isaac to bury their father Abraham. And it is encouraging when we see Esau embracing Jacob. Those are evidence of sanctification, genuine change, therefore signs of grace in their lives. We are not told ultimately and finally what was the destiny of Ishmael or Esau in the Old Testament. But again, the point we're trying to make here is that the sovereignty of God we're looking at is God's sovereign choice about who is the Christ type and who is not. It's not the same thing necessarily as individual salvation. But i come back then to the statement, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Does that indicate the eternal damnation of Esau? Well, part of the reason that we are tempted to think in that direction is the fact that Paul quotes that statement immediately after the older will serve the younger which tends tempts us to view the two statements as essentially the same but they are not and let this be a lesson to us here of the importance of looking up old testament verses that are quoted in the new when you see an old testament verse quoted in the new testament Find out where it is. Go back and read it. Read the context. The apostles weren't just proof texting. They're evoking an entire context uh, in an entire passage in the Old Testament. Okay, So find out where it is. Go back. Read it in context. Find out when it was given, what was the setting, and so forth. Now, when we do that with this, uh, these two quotes, the older will serve the younger, and Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, we see they were completely separate statements made at separate times for different purposes. The older will serve the younger was a prophetic decree by God stated to Rebekah before the boys were born around 1900 B.C. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated was stated by God through the prophet Malachi in around 425 B.C., almost 1,500 years later and long after the boys were dead. And when we read that statement in Malachi in context, we see that it's not even talking about Jacob and Esau individually. It's talking about their descendants over the centuries since their death. Furthermore, it is not talking about eternal damnation. It's talking about temporal judgment. Look at Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Now, the setting here is that God is encouraging Israel to continue rebuilding Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. Now, Israel had faced a lot of hardships and opposition as they were rebuilding Jerusalem, but the main roadblock they were facing was something that was coming from within their own hearts. It was their own sullen self-pitying attitude. God says, I have loved you. They said, how? In other words, you have not loved us. That's what they were saying to God. God responds by saying, is not Esau Jacob's brother declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Then he explains what he means. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says... Now, Edom was Esau's nickname, so it refers to the nation that came for him as Edom. If Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down. In other words, what God is doing here is showing Israel the difference between discipline, which comes from love, and punishment, which is a matter of retribution. God is showing Israel that the Babylonian captivity, which she underwent, was a matter of discipline. It was God's love toward her because she needed to be disciplined. On the other hand, what he was doing with Edom in temporal judgment, bringing the Assyrian captivity upon them, followed by Babylon, God was punishing them for specific things that they had done in history. As a result, God is pointing out, I am allowing you to return to Jerusalem and rebuild. I will allow no such thing for Edom. So why was God bringing temporal judgment against Edom? It was because of a long-term pattern of hatred and hostility toward Israel. Ezekiel 35, verse 3, Behold, O Mount Zer, that's another way of referring to Edom because Mount Zer was in Edom, I am against you, verse 4, I shall lay waste your cities, verse 5, because you have had an ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel. There's many examples of this. One of them is when Israel came out of Egypt in the Exodus and wanted permission to cross Edom's land. She promised to stick to the highway, promised to pay for any damages or anything used or any water that was drunk. But Edom adamantly refused with a great deal of hostility. Edom came out with their army, And so Israel was forced to go around the long way through a very difficult part of the desert. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 20. In the days of Saul and David, Edom often fought against Israel. You can read about that in 1 Samuel 14 and 2 Samuel 8. But probably the most egregious example is when Babylon besieged ...and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. During that time, the Edomites were their cheerleaders. They cheered them on. They just said, tear it down, completely destroy it. Furthermore, Edomites stood on the crossroads outside the city. And those who were trying to escape, they would capture those Israelites and turn them over to the Babylonians... And when the city finally fell, the Edomites participated in the looting of the city. You can read about that in Psalm 137, verse 7, and Obadiah, verses 10 through 14. So God had prophesied historical judgment against Edom through a number of different prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, now Malachi, And uh, again, he brought this about through the Assyrians followed by the domination of the Babylonians. And so in Malachi, what God is saying is that he hates Edom's, Edom's historic hatred and violence toward Israel and that he's going to continue temporal judgment against Edom, specifically that if Edom tried to rebuild, God was going to thwart them by tearing it down again. So Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated is a historical summary of how the older shall serve the younger worked itself out over the generations during the Old Testament. But it is not a statement that all Edomites are eternally damned or under perpetual temporal judgment forever no matter what. We know that because God promised to include Edom with the rest of the Gentiles in his people looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the inauguration of the New Testament, and the establishment of the New Testament church. Look at Amos chapter 9 and verse 1. I saw the Lord standing by the altar, and he said, Strike the doorposts, that the thresholds may shake, and break them on the heads of them all. Verse 11, on that day, in other words, the day that the temple is destroyed, this is talking about 70 AD, when God destroyed the temple, he says in verse 11, on that day, he's going to replace the temple. What is he, this is a reference to the New Testament church, what is he going to replace the temple with? On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. This passage from Amos is quoted by the apostles and elders in Acts chapter 15 at the council of Jerusalem as proof that God in the New Testament was admitting Gentile believers to his people apart from circumcision. Now, the tabernacle of David, this is something that we tend to read right over. I know all of you have read these passages uh, before, like in 1 Chronicles 16, where David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and we don't really think much about it. But the tabernacle of David is extremely significant, but most Christians have no idea what it was. It was a temporary place for the Ark of the Covenant when it was first uh, brought back to Jerusalem by David and before Solomon's temple was built, 1 Chronicles 16.1. So they brought the Ark of God... And set it in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Verse 4. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. To commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief. And next to him Zechariah. Then Jael. Then Shemiramoth. Jehiel, Medahiah. Eliab. Benaiah and Obed-Edom. So it only existed during an interim period and it had some very unusual features that were not characteristic of the former tabernacle of Moses nor of the temple of Solomon that would follow. First of all, notice that worship here in the tabernacle of David is occurring right in front of the Ark of the Covenant. It's occurring right in the very presence of God. Now, if that had been attempted in the tabernacle of Moses, or if it was attempted later in the temple of Solomon, those people would have been consumed by the fire of the Lord. Because only one person once a year with the blood of the atonement was allowed to come in before the ark to the presence of God, and that was the high priest. Here we have all these people and David right in front of the ark worshiping God and no one is being consumed the second thing that is unusual here is that we have a worshiper in fact a worship leader being named here who was a Gentile you notice the name Obed Edom he was a Gittite which means he was from Gath the same Philistine city that Goliath Came from. That's where Obed-Edom is from. He is a Gentile. He first shows up when David was previously afraid to bring the Ark into the city. He left it at the house of Obed-Edom for three months, during which time God did not consume him by fire, but rather blessed him and his household. You can read about that in Second Samuel six verses ten and eleven. So in the tabernacle of David, you have this very strange thing of Jews and Gentiles worshiping together right before the ark, right in the very presence of God. You can see how that is a picture of the New Testament church. But that was not a phenomenon that was normally accepted in the Old Testament. So when God through Amos prophesied what he's going to do in the new covenant, and he's looking forward to the New Testament church, he says, I am going to raise up the tabernacle of David. Today you will hear all kind of arguments among theologians over whether the New Testament church is based primarily on the Old Testament temple or whether it was based primarily on the synagogue. And the answer is right in front of us. Neither. It's based on the tabernacle of David. Now, the tabernacle of David, in fairness, it did have elements of synagogue and elements of temple, but this is one of those instances that we need to ask God to just give us the eyes to see what so often is just right in front of us in scripture, if we could just but see it. And so this is why the council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 quotes Amos and says um, that God confirmed that in the New Testament church, Jews and Gentiles would be together in the one people of God. Now, if you want a particular example of an Edomite believer in the Old Testament, look no further than Caleb. Caleb, the hero among the spies of Israel, who with Joshua was the only one who trusted the Lord and encouraged the Israelites to take the land. You can read about that in Numbers 13. You see, Caleb was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. Numbers 32, 12, Genesis 36, 10 through 15. Specifically, he was a Kenizzite. That is, he was a descendant of Kenaz, who was Kenaz, Esau's grandson, through his firstborn son, Eliphaz. And yet, Caleb was a believer. He was a hero of the conquest of Canaan. And by God's own command, Caleb was given a share in the inheritance of the tribe of Judah, just like he was an Israelite. But he wasn't. He was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau. And when he was asked his request for a land, he said, give me the hill country around Hebron. Why did he want the hill country around Hebron? Because that's where the Anakim, the giants, were. Now, Caleb was 85 years old when he said that. He said, perhaps the Lord will be with me and enable me to drive the giants out. That's the kind of man that Caleb was. And God did. Caleb and his descendants drove the Anakim out of the area of Hebron. So when we put all these things together, we see that God all along in the Old Testament is preaching the gospel over and over. He is pointing forward to Christ he is giving types of Christ that reveal various aspects that will be true of Christ in various ways. You can see that, you know, Isaac, for example, he was born pursuant to promise. He was born miraculously to a woman who could not conceive. He was offered up on the altar as a picture of death and resurrection. In all these ways, he was a picture of Christ. We're going to see. Uh, like with David, for example, David was the shepherd king and David was also a prophet. God usually kept the offices separate, a prophet from priest, from uh, from king. But David was a king and was a prophet. He wrote most of the Psalms. Um, he also, we have also these indications that he held some kind of priesthood, not Not Levitical priesthood, obviously. But we have numerous instances of David meeting with God right before the Ark. Well, the king's not allowed to come in before the Ark of the Covenant. That's not allowed. Only the high priest, only once a year, only with the blood. But David is talking to God right there in the Ark, face to face. And so, again, who is the Messiah going to be? Well, he's going to be a prophet who is also a priest, but not according to the order of Aaron or the Levites, but according to the order of Melchizedek. And he's going to become king. And so you see how David was such a powerful picture of Christ because there was a sense in which God combined all the offices with him. But we also see all along the way that even though God was building this special nation of Israel, now remember, at Babel, God had fragmented the human race into different languages and different nations, basically to hold down the evil while God works his plan of redemption. Pursuant to which he is raising up a special nation, a nation of priests and nations that are special, uh, special witnesses for him in the Old Testament. But all along the way, God keeps pointing to the fact that that special nation of Israel is not his final project. It is a step on the way to the New Testament church, which will be a worldwide people Involving believers from all nations together. He keeps pointing to that fact. And so that's why you have somebody like Caleb. One of the great heroes of Israel. But he's not even an Israelite. He's a descendant of Esau. But he's a hero and he's given part of the inheritance. You have things like that. And you go, well, what explains that? Because that's where God's going. You have things like the tabernacle of David. It's like, what the heck is this? That doesn't follow the rules of the tabernacles. It doesn't follow the rule of the temple. What happened to all the rules? All the rules are being broken at the tabernacle of David. They're worshiping right in front of the Lord. You've got Jews and Gentiles, Obed, Eden, from Gath, where Goliath came from, of all places. He's there helping lead the worship. And you have all of that stuff going on. It's like, what does that mean? Where did that come from? God keeps saying, this is where I'm going. This is where I'm going the whole time. And so you see, when you came back to the burning issue of the first century, what defines God's people? And the Jewish leaders were saying, national Israel defines God's people. Circumcision, separation from Gentiles. That's what defines God's people. And the apostles, seeing what God was doing the whole time, were saying, no, Jesus defines God's people. Faith in him, faith alone in him defines God's people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.